get things started here. Let's uh, open with a word of prayer and then uh, we'll get things started with, uh, with our class this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, we just ask your blessing upon it. Father, we thank you for the beautiful sunshine, uh, just a, a gorgeous day outside. Uh, Lord, we just uh, ask your blessing as we look into your word today, as we talk about the, the things uh, of the future. Uh, and uh, Lord, we just pray for every class that's meeting today. We pray for the service to follow, uh, and we ask that you would be glorified in everything that we do today. You'd be pleased, uh, and Father, uh, that your name would just be lifted up. And we ask this in your precious name. Amen. All right. Good morning. Uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. Uh, I want to look at the one passage last week that we did not look at in regards to, uh, to the Antichrist, uh, and that is the 1 John passages. And I want to kind of talk about what, uh, you know, what's going on there. Um, and then we're, we're going to move into uh, kind of a discussion this morning of some of the conditions uh, that, that kind of uh, exist at the time of the beginning of the tribulation. Uh, now, obviously, it's a uh, somewhat controversial topic. There's a lot of different ideas about uh, the timing of some of these things. Uh, and, and we'll talk more about that and, 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 uh, as we go through this morning here. But just uh, before we move back into Revelation uh, next week, in Revelation chapter 6, I want to kind of talk about some of these conditions uh, that exist at the beginning of the tribulation and, and, and some much talked about things. So hopefully uh, it'll be an interesting discussion this morning. Now turn to 1 John chapter 2. And here is where we get the, the, the phrase, uh, the word Antichrist, okay? We've seen that this, this person that we call the Antichrist called numerous different things, the lawless one, uh, the destroyer, all, all kinds of things, uh, the little horn. Um, but here we see that, 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 that title given to him of Antichrist. If you look at uh, 1 John 2, verses 18 and 19, says, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but, uh, but their going showed that no, uh, none of them belonged to us. Now, here we see a reference to kind of two things. We see a reference to the future coming Antichrist, the great Antichrist, you might call him, the, the, the one that we think of when we think of the Antichrist. But we also think, we, we also see that, 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 that spirit of Antichrist and, and kind of little Antichrist have always been here, you know. So he, he uses that title, and evidently it was a title that was already probably in use, because he tells them, you know that the Antichrist is coming. So even though it had not been used in Scripture yet, it was probably used amongst the churches already. That they had started calling the, you know, the, the person we talked about in Daniel, the little horn, they had pr probably already started calling him the Antichrist. Because that's really what he is. It's a, it's a descriptive term. He is Antichrist. He, he, you know, he is the complete opposite. He's kind of like the mockery of Christ. Uh, and so he had already, you know, they were already talking about him. They knew about him. They had been taught about him. Uh, and so here, you know, John refers to him. And this is the same John that would write the, 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 the book of Revelation, have the, have the, the revelation. Uh, and, 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 you know, he, he says, dear children, this is the last hour. As you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. He is coming one day. He is coming. That's, that's what John is telling them. But he, he goes on to say, even now many antichrists have come. Now, one, it points to the fact that that anti-Christian 
behavior, that kind of anti-Christian attitude has always existed. It will always exist. And it is the same basic philosophy that Satan uses to drive the Antichrist at the end. Uh, it is opposing the things of God, uh, opposing the truth. And, 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 you know, I think sometimes, I always kind of laugh at this because I always say it's, it's, Christians sometimes seem shocked by the fact that the world does not believe what we believed. But, they, you know, I don't know how we can be because the Bible couldn't be much clearer that, you know, the world is very different than, than the church then God's people has a very different mindset. Now, we are to love those people. We are to try to reach those people. We are to be kind to the world around us, be Christ-like in the way we deal with them, but we are also to understand that the way they think, the way they do things, what they believe is going to be very different than us. And I'm always a little kind of shocked that we're so shocked when we, you know, well, they, they don't believe what we believe. Well, of course they don't. If, if, they, if they did, they would be, they, they'd be among us. You know, the, the, the other interesting thing that you see here is that some of these people were all, people who claimed to be Christians. They were people in the church. Look at what he says. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. The particular people that he's talking about in their context were people that used to be a part of their group, their church. They had gone out from the, the, the church. They, they claimed to be believers, but John is saying they, they, they never were really believers. They did not really belong to the church. I want us to, to look a little further here. Turn over to chapter 4. Um, well, I'll tell you what, before we look at chapter 4, let's just stay in chapter 2. Look down at verses 22 and 23. It says, who is, who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. This is probably a reference to what the difficulty was at, at, you know, in why these people uh, left the church, quote-unquote. Why they were kind of little antichrists. Because they were believing a, a very early uh, heresy uh, and, and there were many kind of very early heresies in the church, but most of them in particular uh, were kind of aimed at who Christ was. Some believe that, that Jesus was, was God, but he was not human at all because humanity was evil. And, and that was kind of an early form of what, what we have later kind of begun to call Gnosticism. The idea that human flesh and, and, and humanity was, was, was evil. Uh, you know, and, and, and so there's no way that Jesus could have actually been real. So the, the death on the cross was, was just kind of all imagery. Then other heresies went the other direction. Jesus was human, but he wasn't really God. You know, he, he was kind of made the son of God by God, but he was just a human being. He was, he was a created human being just like us, and then God picked him and said, you're going to be the son of God. So those are the, the, the heresies that went, you know, two different directions, you know, when it, when it came to Jesus. Now, this is very early on. We don't know exactly what is going on here. It seems like it kind of was maybe a, a little bit of a forerunner to what Gnosticism would become. Uh, but, but, you know, we know it existed here because John is saying, hey, these people were amongst us and they went out from us. And then he starts pointing out the problem. That, you know, they're, they're essentially believing a lie and telling a lie. You know, they, they, uh, you know, they did not have a proper understanding of who Jesus was. Again, let me read verses 22 and 23. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. 
whoever acknowledges this, is, acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So that kind of gets to the point. They were denying the Son that, that He was God, that He was the Messiah, that He was the, the one who was promised to come. And they thought, we still have the Father, but they were denying the Son. And He said, you can't have the Father and deny the Son. If you have the Son, you have the Father also, but you can't deny the Father or the Son and have the Father. You can't do it. The two go hand in hand. So we see this, this early kind of, uh, you know, what he calls anti, anti-Christ kind of mindset and behavior that existed even in the early days of the church. So folks, do not get shocked at the fact that the world does not believe the same things about Jesus that we believe. They didn't even in the early church. And people left the church and people were kicked out of the church and, and, and it was a fight in the early church to, to keep the purity of the faith of, of, of who Jesus Christ was. It, it, it has always been a fight. It will always be a fight. Those of you who have been in my class long enough, you know every, every year at Christmas time I challenge you on this. Go to a local bookstore that has a magazine rack. And see how many depictions of Jesus you can find in the magazine rack. They're all over the place. Everybody loves Jesus, especially around Christmas time and Easter. Do it this year at Easter. But they all have their own different ideas of who Jesus was. Their own redefining of who he was. See, the world still does the same thing that happened in the world then. You know, and that is you know, the spirit, he says, of Antichrist. It's in the world, and it's always been in the world, and it's always been at work. If you look over at chapter 4, verse 3, he says, But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. The person that we think of at the end of times, the Antichrist, he is coming. But the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world, denying who Jesus was. And that essentially is, is, is going to be behind a lot of what the Antichrist does. When we get into uh, Revelation, as we get further into it and we start seeing the activity of him, uh, we're going to see that, that he's going to deny God, just like the Old Testament prophecies said, he's going to, not, to deny God and he's going to set himself up as God instead. That he is the Christ. He is the one who should be worshipped. So, so don't, you know, don't be shocked when the world doesn't believe what you believe. Uh, you know, really you should be shocked if they do. You know, uh, th- th- that spirit is, is already at work in the world and always has been at work in the world. Uh, real briefly, just g- jump over to 2 John, verses 7 through 11. And we see here in his second letter, John emphasizing the same, the same thoughts. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is, as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have, what we have worked for, but that you may uh, be rewarded fully, or some of you have received a full reward. Don't fall away, don't fall into that, and lose the reward that, you, you know, that, that God has for you. Uh, you know, it, it, now he, again, he's not, you see, he's not talking about loss of salvation, but he's talking about loss of reward. He's saying that even Christians can come, become sidetracked. And, and that has happened many, many times through the years. Uh, Christians who, you know, I don't know if you know anything about the Unitarian movement that, that's been around for hundreds of years. Uh, you know, that's really at the heart of, of what the Unitarians believe. That, that there's just one God, God the Father, but, you know, Jesus isn't, isn't, isn't really God. You know, the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, both, you know, neither believe that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Just that He was made the Son of God, but He wasn't the eternal Son of God. 
And, and many Christians have fallen into these types of, of beliefs. And so his argument here to his people is be careful. Be careful because you don't want to get sidelined and lose the reward that, that God has waiting for you because you've gotten caught up in, in these false beliefs. He says, anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. You see, again, it's the emphasis, both. You have both. You know, it, people did not believe that Jesus was the Christ. They, they did not believe that he had come in the flesh. But you have to have both. You have to have Christ in order to have the Father. You can't have the Father without Christ. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. Don't fool around with them. You know, just sorry. You know, thanks for coming, but not interested. You know, don't fool around with them. So this whole idea, the spirit of the Antichrist has always been there, folks. And it, and, and it always will be right till the end. Right till Christ comes in his second coming and defeats the Antichrist, that same spirit will always be there. Now, the second thing I kind of want to look at here uh, is, is something we talked a little bit about last week. I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 7. We looked at Daniel's vision here, well, you know, Daniel's dream, his, his visions as he slept of these four beasts uh, that came out of the sea, and we talked about how the, the, the last beast was most likely Rome, uh, and, and that coming out of that last beast was ten horns that were ten kings or kingdoms, uh, and then coming out of the ten kings or kingdoms was one little horn that grew in stature and uprooted three uh, and, and that that was the antichrist okay so that that's kind of a summary of what we talked about in a lot of ways last week i i told you i wanted to go back and kind of talk about some of those details a little bit more and one is this whole idea of of a, of a one world government and and of a new roman empire now, as I discussed last week, it seems pretty obvious that there is some sort of a new, um, new Rome, a continuation between the ancient Roman Empire, which ended uh, many years ago, to a kind of a new future Roman Empire. We don't know exactly what that's going to look like, um, but, but that is coming. If you look at at, at Daniel 7, verse 7, and then we're going to jump over, and he says the same thing in verse 23. He says, After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there uh, before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its, its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. So we, we see you know, that, that fourth beast, and it, it's very different. And like I said, you know, uh, uh, probably the majority of, of, of evangelical scholars believe that is Rome. Not all, but probably the majority. Um, the, real, the real difference, you know, I, I'll let you in on a little kind of a view of kind of how things work a lot of times in, in kind of the, the scholarly world. Uh, the real difference comes to the dating of Daniel. Uh, you know, some scholars believe Daniel is, is like six centuries before Christ, and the prophecies that he's giving are predictive prophecies. Uh, other scholars believe it's like two centuries before Christ, and he's talking about things that have kind of already happened, but he's kind of painting them as predictive pro uh, prophecies, which was actually a common literary tool of the day. And so that's what some people believe is happening. If that's the position you take, then most of them think he's talking about Greece. But if you believe that Daniel is 6th century and these things are all future, then almost all of those scholars believe that, that he's talking about Rome. And, and that's the position I would take myself. That's, that, I think that's the position that is the soundest. Uh, the other position kind of 
almost starts out with the whole idea that predictive prophecy can't really happen, and so we have to figure out a way around that. Well, I just don't think that's a biblical position. So, you know, almost all scholars that take an early dating for Daniel, you know, take the position that this is Rome that we're talking about. So, this is more than likely Rome, Um, and as you see, it's a very powerful beast destroying everything. If you jump over to verse 23, it says, uh, he gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth. See, he gives something different there in 23. He gives a little bit more information uh, when Daniel talks to, uh, to, to, to one of the, the, the people there in his, in his vision. It says they, he will devour the whole earth trampling it down and crushing it so it 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 does appear very clear scripturally that there's coming a day where there is going to be a one world government and we'll talk a little bit more about that here in just a second that's kind of the next topic i want to hit but first this whole idea of what is this new rome well as i discussed last week rome the roman empire dissolved uh you know scholars date it somewhat differently but but you know right around the year 407 uh somewhere in that time is kind of how a lot of people see the end of the roman empire um so it did you know it it, it hasn't existed in in over 1600 years so you know there, there there is no rome so it's not like whatever this future Rome is, is going to grow directly out of the ancient Rome. Not if it's, you know, sticking strictly to one empire passing on to another empire. There has to be a break in time. So that leads us to, is it in some other way? Is it, it's, is it just uh, there's going to be a big break and there's going to be a future realignment somehow of Rome? Or is it it's, it's, it's more of a, uh, uh, the idea of Rome. Let me kind of read something to you from a, uh, a late scholar, Kenneth Gangle, uh, who was a, a very famous scholar at one point. This is from the Holman Old Testament commentary. He says this about, about Rome. Rome ruled the world for over 700 years, from about 250 B.C. to 407 A.D., and lived on after the sack of the city of Rome so that there were still Roman, Roman rulers in the Renaissance. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, up through, you know, really many, many years, people all over Europe, you know, different, different uh, groups of people claim to be the heirs of Rome. How many of you have ever heard of the Holy Roman Empire? That's, they, they, that whole idea of the Holy Roman Empire was that they were taking the mantle of what had been Rome. The famous you know, leader Charlemagne, uh, you know, who was essentially Germanic. You know, I mean, he was not what we would think. He was not Italian, but he was Germanic, but he took the title Holy Roman Emperor. Even up to modern day, up, in, up until the time of World War I, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was, was ruled by the Habsburgs. And the Habsburgs, whoever ruled the, the, Holy, uh, whoever ruled the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire was also seen as the Holy Roman Emperor. So the last of the Habsburg line was considered at the time the Holy Roman Emperor. Even beyond that, you know that the, the German word Kaiser is simply the German version of Caesar. The Russian word czar is a Slavic form of Caesar. And and so for for many, many years, particularly in Europe, that the whole idea of carrying on Rome has been around for a long, long time. As I mentioned to you last week, the idea of imperialism, the, a, a new kind of form of government that, that Rome kind of brought to the picture instead of conquering a land and then having their people rule it, but you oversaw them, 
Rome came in and they said, no, 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 we're not even going to let you rule your own land. We're going to send councils and proconsuls and governors into your land, and they're going to rule you from Rome. That idea of imperialism was something that Rome kind of introduced to the world and has continued on in different governmental forms, but that whole idea has continued on. I want you to think of it this way. Even the whole thought of how, how the, the, the West today tries to spread democracy to the world. So see, there's many different ways that this former Roman, you know, future Roman Empire could take shape. We really don't know. But in some way, the Bible seems very clear that there's going to be a future Roman Empire. And, you know, it's going to come about some way. It may not be an actual direct outgrowth of Rome. Like, and what I'm saying is it may not grow up in Rome. It may not be Italians leading it. You know, it could be a lot of different forms of people all throughout the world. So we have to be a little careful in this when we start kind of, uh, you know, trying to take stands of, well, this is going to be the new Roman Empire. But you hear this kind of nonsense all the time. A lot of the conspiracy theory things, you know, like the QAnon stuff and that stuff out there were just pure nonsense. There's no, nothing biblical about any of that stuff. So you have to have some caution because we don't know what form that's going to take in the future. It could grow up out of democracy. It literally could. Because the whole idea of, of representative democracy takes its, its idea from Rome, from the Roman Empire. So we don't know what it's going to look like. But someday it's coming in some, in some way, some form. Let me read the last sentence here. It says, uh, and this is fascinating, it says, even in the 21st century we talk about romance languages. When you hear people talk about a romance language, you know what that means? It just means a, a language that's based in, in, in Latin, in the la- language of Rome. Italian, German, Spanish, they all have their Latin as their mother language. That's why you'll see some words that are similar in all of them. And the thing about English, you know why English has been so successful? English has been so successful because English absorbs all other languages into it. We take, you know, they're called like borrowed, borrowed words. We borrow words from all these other languages. And we adopt them into English. It's why English has kind of taken over the world as the common language of the world. It's built for incredible success because it never kind of goes out of style. It just kind of sucks into it all the other words that, that it likes. And, and so we, you know, we'll have words. It, it, it always amazes me. I can go to a to a, a Mexican restaurant and sit down, and I can understand what certain words are just because they're very similar to other words in other languages that are similar to English. That's because all those words kind of come from a common background. So you know, we don't know what this is going to look like someday, but someday it, it, it seems very clear that that Rome. Uh, you know, a new Roman Empire of some sort is coming. May not even call itself the Roman Empire, but in some ways, growing out of what Rome was and the idea of Rome, will come a, a, an empire someday into the world that will continue the, the vision that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7. So that is coming one day. And it, to our third point, it's very clear that that will be a one-world government. It will devour the whole earth. Now, here's the, the important thing. Again, don't get caught up in like, like a lot of the crazy stuff that you read out there. That in itself does not bring on Antichrist, not directly. Before Antichrist comes... That one world government that grows out of Rome has to come first. Then the ten horns have to come, first, come before the Antichrist. Then the Antichrist. 
If we take the Bible seriously, he's at least three steps removed from coming until that one world government comes. So so he doesn't just kind of leap right out of that. You know, that's kind of the beginning process, but we don't know how long that may last. That could be hundreds of years. We just don't know. So again, be very careful, you know, not to get too caught up in, in too many things. Another thing that's important for us to understand, when you hear a lot of these, like, uh, you know, it's funny, sometimes these ideas you hear out there in the world, on the internet and all that kind of stuff, they sound more like movies than they do like the Bible. It's like the, you know, like the horror movie where, uh, you know, Armageddon is about to come and some angel comes from God and, and like, you know, has a way to, to stop it all and, you know, has some, you know, gets caught up with some guy and they are trying to fight the forces of evil and the next thing you know, they stop, the Ar- stop Armageddon. You guys have all, you know, heard those nonsense movies as, you know, kind of silly movies. That's what a lot of these, you know, internet things out there sound like well you know man somebody's going to ride in a white horse and they're going to stop it all from happening can't stop it from happening folks it's god's will that it's hap- that it happens he gives the prophecies that say it's coming when the day comes no human effort no effort of any demons or angels will ever be able to stop it. When it comes, it will come. Remember, who's the one opening the seals that brings the Antichrist onto the scene? Christ is. God is always in control. We forget that when we get caught up in all the nonsense. When we read all the things online, forget all that stuff. Jesus is in control. You don't have to be afraid. Nothing is going to catch him by surprise. God knows it all. He knows it's coming, and he already has a plan for how he's going to use the evil ideas of Satan and the Antichrist to accomplish what he wants to accomplish himself. See, that's the great thing about God. Remember what he told, what, what, what Joseph told his brothers? When you sold me into slavery, you meant it as evil but God meant it as good? See, it was their idea, but God always knew they would have that idea, so God already had a plan. If he let them freely do that, he already had a plan for how he was going to use their free choices to to make his plan work out. See, only God can do that. And that's what God will do with Satan. Satan is not too great to get around the omnipotence and, and, and and the omniscience of God. He can't. So don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. No one can ride in and stop this once it starts, and that's okay because God has it under control. The interesting thing, the whole idea of one world government, we, I think, rightly find as repugnant, But the Bible actually seems to stress there's going to be three of those. There's the one coming that grows out of Rome, you know, that becomes that new Roman Empire someday. Then sometime after that, there's going to be the Antichrist who's going to take over the world. And then Jesus is going to come, and he's going to take over the world. And he's going to set up a one-world government for a thousand years. Now, I'm not real hepped up about the first two, but that third one sounds pretty doggone awesome to me. So don't get all caught up in what you see online and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Don't, if it's asking you to be afraid, throw it in the trash or hit the the button and shut it off. Because God will never ask you to be afraid. There's no reason for you to be afraid because he has it under control. Now the next thing that we see is there's ten horns that come out of this. We already read 
verse 7, I'll just read the end of it again, it was different from all the former beasts and it had ten horns. First part of verse 24 gives us a, a kind of an explanation. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. Now again, what form do they take? That word king can also be you know, kingdom. It can also mean you know, ruler in a more general sense. So they could be kings, maybe someday. Basically, the picture is at some point, this one world government that kind of grows out of Rome in some way is going to come onto the earth. But you know, it's not going to last. And at some point, whoever rules it, ten kings are going to take over, or ten rulers, ten kingdoms. It's going to split into ten at some point. Is it going to be ten kings, ten presidents, ten prime ministers, ten corporate CEOs? I don't know. No way we can know. But somehow it's going to break into ten, and they will rule the world. Now let me read something to you. Now this is from a, a Jewish Christian, a, a, a pretty famous Jewish Christian thinker named Arnold Fruchtenbaum. He's a, a big leader in the Messianic Jewish movement. He has a lot to say about old-time prophecy, Old Testament prophecy. I think he has a lot of good stuff. I don't agree with Fruchtenbaum on everything. I kind of agree with his overall view of, of things, and, and I, I do think he makes a lot of good points. I don't necessarily agree with his take on everything, but uh, you know, I think he has a lot of good, interesting things to say. And again, he gives a note of caution here that I think would be good for us to, to follow. It says, many commentators refer to the ten kingdoms as being in Europe only, especially the former common market, now the European Union. You guys have all heard that, haven't you? That's what those ten kings are. It's what it has to be. Well, maybe they should listen to this guy with, the, with both a Jewish and a Christian background. So the text does not allow for this kind of interpretation. At the very best, the European Union might become one of the ten kingdoms, but it could hardly become all of them. A careful reading of the Daniel passage states that once the fourth empire rules the whole world, then this one ten-division ten stage. It is most likely not going to be the European Union. This is going to be ten rulers that will rule the entire world, and they will probably cover the world in some way. It's interesting that, you know, Europe still has a lot of economic power, but so does the United States, so does Asia. So does South America. Brazil is emerging as an, an incredible economic power. The point is not that any of those are the ten kingdoms either. I have no idea. I'm not trying to make any kind of prediction. What I'm trying to say, if we looked at the world now and we said, where does the power really lie? We would not say it all lies in ten guys in Europe. It's split all over the world. And that's probably what it's going to look like someday when this one world government kind of blows up and ten kings take over and rule the entire world. But we don't know exactly what it's going to look like. The Bible never tells us. But as, as Fruchtenbaum rightly says, we need to be cautious, folks. We tend to get all caught up in these different schemes of things. And what happens is, is usually one or two famous like pastors will preach some sermon, well, this is what it has to be, and all of a sudden, like, everybody starts to follow it, and it'll go on for 50, 60 years, and everybody's like, well, that's what it has to be. We all know that's what the Bible says. And somewhere along those decades, everybody stopped looking at what the Bible actually says. And we just assume that that's right. And his caution is we shouldn't make that assumption. 
We don't know what this will look like. So again, don't get caught up on the stuff you read on the internet. Well, this person is, boy, look at how powerful that person is. He may be one of, well, no, he's, one, the whole Roman Empire has to come first before the, any of the ten kings come. So whoever you're seeing out there in the news is probably not one of these guys. So don't worry about it. Don't get caught up in it. We get too caught up in too many things, and again, it takes our eyes off Christ. He's the one who has control. Folks, these things are coming someday. But God will always be in control of them. He, he is going to use them to punish a wicked world and to bring probably millions of people to Christ in the process. Th their ideas are going to be, hey, man, we're going to rule, we're going to get this. You know, the Antichrist is going to think, hey, I'm going to get God out of the picture. But God always knows everything they're thinking already. He knew it before the world was ever created. He already has a plan for how he's going to use all their actions, all their ideas to further what he wants. I think that's fantastic news. Nothing that we will ever face in life has to get us down because God is in control. Same thing with the end times. We see that out of this, the Antichrist rises. Verse 8 in, in Daniel 7, it says, While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the, uh, of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like, a, uh, uh, like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. In verse 24, the rest of verse 24, it says this about him. After them, after the ten horns, after them another king will arise different from the earlier ones and he will subdue three kings. And that whole idea of being uprooted is an idea of violent action. It is to pull them up by the roots. The Antichrist will at some point take violent action against three of those rulers, whatever they are, and he will subdue three of them. He will destroy them. He, he will violently take their position. And once he does that, the Bible tells us the other seven will acquiesce to him. They will give up essentially to him. And he will take control. Remember when we read two weeks ago that verse, the first seal was opened. It said a rider and a white horse came with a bow, coming to conquer, bent on conquest. So that's the Antichrist. Coming to conquer, bent on conquest. His mind is bent on conquest. That's what he wants. That's the picture we see in the Old Testament. He's coming to conquer. I mentioned this briefly, uh, I think last week, two weeks ago maybe. Um, but the common idea was that uh, amongst a lot of, of, of Christians was that he was Jewish. Uh, I mentioned actually... Uh, 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 Henry Kissinger, which actually uh, Mark told me, he said, it, it sounds like Kissinger's still alive, which is just amazing to me. He's like 98 years old. He's not the Antichrist. He's barely anything at this point, but he's, you know, he's still evidently uh, kicking out there. I actually had thought I heard he died this past year, but uh, evidently he pulled through. <laughs> um, but he is not going to be the Antichrist, and the Antichrist does not have to be Jewish. You know, the whole idea was the only, per, only way the Jews would sign a seven-year peace treaty with the Antichrist was if the Antichrist was Jewish himself. But as I pointed out last week, that's just logically false, considering the Jews have treaties with us, they have treaties with the, the countries around them, who, many of them who hate them, but they still have treaties with them. So there's nothing, there's nothing that logically makes sense about he has to be Jewish. As we saw you know, last week, it says that, that he is the prince of the people who would come, the people who would destroy Jerusalem. Well, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. Now, as we've been mentioning, we don't know exactly what it means that he's Roman. He doesn't have to be Italian. You know, Roman can mean other things because it's come to mean other things through the years. 
And, you know, some people would point out, well, yeah, there were even Jews who were Roman citizens, the Apostle Paul. But the Jews certainly didn't destroy their own city. They didn't destroy the sanctuary. So it seems the safest position seems to take that he is going to be Gentile of some sort. I don't know if he's going to be Italian. You know, I think that's far too much of a stretch to make. Some would, some claim that, but I think that's too much. But he will somehow be, he will be a Gentile and he will somehow grow out of this, you know, new Roman Empire and these ten kingdoms that rule that, you know, that take over what was that new Roman Empire. He, you know, he, in that three-part new Rome, ten kings, he's going to be the third form of that. He is going to take over what those ten kings ruled, and again, he will basically have a one-world government, like, you know, like, like the, the new Roman Empire was. But probably not Jewish, almost certainly not Jewish. Now, the fifth point I wanted to look at today, check the time here. The Bible seems to stress that there will be a new temple built. If you look at, at Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, when it's talking about uh, this, this one who is to come and will make a covenant, uh, it says, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering, and at the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Now there are a few other passages that stress the same thing. In fact, in the, in the New Testament, if you turn over to 2 Thessalonians... Second Thessalonians chapter two verse four, talking about this man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, says he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Pretty much sounds like exactly the same thing Daniel. 927 said doesn't it you know even jesus himself talked about this in the olivet discourse in matthew chapter 24 verse 15 jesus says this so when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet daniel let the reader understand. And then he goes on to give instructions of what to do. Basically, get out of there. Now, it's interesting because it's clear that Jesus himself saw Daniel's prophecies as still being future. And Jesus is saying the same thing Daniel said and the same thing that Paul said in 2 Thessalonians. This man of lawlessness will one day come, this Antichrist, and he will at some point set up an, a, a, an image of himself in the temple to be worshipped. And, and, and he will abominate the temple. He will stop the worship and he will basically desecrate the temple. Now, all that is said to make the point that that means there has to be a temple to do that to. Okay? Currently, there is not a temple. There, there is no current temple. So either that temple has to be rebuilt or another temple has to take its place in some way. And those are kind of the, you know, the ideas out there for what has to happen. It, it, there's also the idea that the temple may not be an actual place, but the temple might be the idea of, of, of worship, like a renewed, uh, you know, kind of convicted Judaism that, that really starts trying to follow God, and even though they don't have a temple, they, they, they all are worshiping God, and he tries to stop that. Those are kind of the, the ideas that are out there for what this future temple would be. 
Either the dome of the rock has to be destroyed and a new temple built on the ground of the old temple, or there has to be a new temple at some other place, or that the temple is really just the idea of a renewed you know, worship, uh, and it's more figurative than anything. Look, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to jump in those waters. I don't really care in some ways, to be honest with you, because it's under God's control. Whatever Antichrist does, I, I kind of lean toward a new temple being built, but I, you know, the, the, some of the arguments that are made in the other things are, are, you know, are decent. They're sound enough. But like I said, I'm not going to kind of go down those. I'm not a Bible scholar. I'm not going to go down those paths. But somehow, a, a temple of some sort is going to be coming again someday, and that seems pretty clear. Probably most likely a new temple on the old temple ground. But possibly one of these other ideas. But either way, it will be a temple of some sort coming in the future. Uh, and, and, you know, the Jewish worship will come alive again someday, it appears. There will be an effort by the Jews of the world to start worshiping their God in a true biblical sense again someday. You realize that, that most of, of the Jewish people in the world today are not conservative Orthodox Jews. They're not Bible-believing Jews. Even in Israel, Israel is one of the most like agnostic places in the world, folks. The majority of the people there are not believing. Yeah, we don't know, we don't really kind of understand, but that but that's the case. Now, if we have time, we'll get to one of the things that may bring about this uh, this new sense of uh, of change in 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 the Jewish world. Uh, as I mentioned already, it says here in verse uh, verse twenty seven that he will confirm a covenant, or some of you have confirmed a strong covenant. Uh, with many for for one of the sevens for one of the seven year periods the rapture does not start the tribulation many people have kind of grown up with the idea that the, the the rapture happens and that begins the tribulation that is not what the bible says it could happen at the same time but it doesn't necessarily have to happen as we mentioned earlier, there are different views about when the rapture will happen amongst Christians. You know, myself personally, I, I am a pre-tribulationist. I believe the rapture happens before the tribulation. And that is the position that we have always taken as a church. And I believe that is the most sound. But like I said, there, they, you know, some of the other arguments are good arguments. They make sound points. They're, you know, the Bible never com comes out and spells it out clearly. And that's why... We all argue about it, you know, but I think the soundest view is a pre-tribulational view, but even in a pre-tribulational view, that does not mean the rapture starts the tribulation. The tribulation is started by the signing of this peace treaty between the Antichrist and the Jewish leadership. He confirms a covenant for one seven. Remember, there's one seven-year stretch of time left on God's prophetic time clock and what begins that seven-year stretch daniel chapter 9 verse 27 tells us the antichrist makes a covenant for those seven years let me read it he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven that is where the seven-year clock begins to tick when he makes that covenant a covenant is a contract it's the Jewish word berit. He's going to have a contract, a covenant, a treaty, if you will, with the leadership of the Jewish people. Notice he says with many, not all. Evidently, not everybody is going to, you know, uh, you know not all Jews are going to be, you know, in on this. Wait, wait a minute, I think this is a problem. But, you know, who's, who signs the contracts or the treaties for a country? The leadership does. So at some point, the leadership is going to sign this contract with the Antichrist, this, this treaty, this covenant, and, and that will begin that seven-year stretch. 
as a pre-tribulationalist, I believe the rapture takes place before that. It could happen a number of years before that, folks. We don't know. We don't know. It's more than likely pretty close, but we don't know that for sure. You know, but it, the rapture itself does not start the tribulation period. All right, what do we got here? <laughs> we got four minutes. Real quickly, let me point something out to you. The and and a lot of you, how many of you have heard that Elijah has to come back before the the tribulation? Anybody ever hear that? Really? I'm a little surprised by that. Some, I, I knew a few hands. How many of you have ever been to a Seder dinner? A, a Jewish Seder dinner. At a Seder dinner, there is always one, that is the Jewish Passover meal. It's called a Seder dinner. We've actually had two or three of them here through the years. Maybe we're going to have to do this again. That would it'd be a good thing to do if you've never, if you've never experienced it. It's a, it's a tremendous thing to experience. There's always an empty chair left at the table for Elijah. Because the Jewish people believe Elijah is coming back someday. Before the day of Jehovah. The day of the Lord. The, 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 the last seven years. They believe Elijah is coming back someday. I want you to look at Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And, and, and if you want to just write these down and just follow, you can do that, because I'm probably going to move here fairly quick, because we're just about out of time. It says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and terrible, or day, great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Malachi is a prophecy of these terrible things that were going on in Judaism, uh, you know, how they, they were sinning against God. Uh, you know, Malachi is the last book of the, of the Old Testament here. And, and, and even at that time, like, like right before uh, a 400-year stretch that took place between the Old Testament and the time of Christ. Right before that time, the Jewish people were still, you know, falling away from God. They still were not following Him as they should. And that's much of what Malachi is about. And right at the end, the last two verses of Malachi's prophecy, God, through Malachi, says, I will send Elijah to you one day before that great and terrible day of Jehovah. And he will start rebuilding things. Turning the hearts of the parents to the children and the hearts of the children back to the parents. It's interesting because over in Isaiah chapter 40, this is a very famous passage, especially around Christmas time. Isaiah 40 verses 3, and five, three through 5 we see that there's also promised to be someone coming before the first coming of Messiah. So we've seen here there's a promise that Elijah is coming before the second coming of Messiah. But Isaiah tells us that someone was also coming before the first coming of Messiah. A voice of one calling in, uh, calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, and every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall come, uh, become level, uh, and the rugged places a plain. The glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See, Isaiah predicted that, some, that some was coming, someone was coming before the Messiah would come, and he was going to uh, prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. Now, I think the Jews probably thought those two people were going to be the same. They didn't realize there was going to be two comings of Messiah. But we now as Christians know that Christ came first to die and then he will come again someday to conquer and set up his kingdom. And so these two forerunners, if you will, are separated by a vast amount of time. Now I think most of you guys know the first forerunner was John the Baptist. But you know that people in Jesus' day confused John the Baptist with Elijah. Look at uh, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. 
This is talking about John and his when he was at the the height of his uh, ministry, and, and the Jews were trying to figure out who who he was. It says in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, uh, saying, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven it has come near." This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And it talks about how John was dressed, and we don't need to go into that this morning. But John was coming to kind of prepare this way. That's who John was. If you look over at John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, Verses 19 through 23, they question John about his identity. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, Then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the one coming. I'm I'm not the the Messiah or Elijah. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of uh, of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. See, John knew who he was. He knew he was the forerunner of the Christ not Elijah. He knew he was not the Messiah, and he knew he was not Elijah. Now, why does this get difficult for sometimes? Because some people get very confused by this. Well, it's because of something Jesus said after the Mount of Transfiguration. The Mount of Transfiguration, if you remember, Jesus went up on the the Mount with, with these three closest uh, uh, disciples and and Moses and Elijah appeared to them and, and, and in the wake of that as they're coming down the mountain in, in Matthew 17 verses 9 through 13 Jesus said this to them as they were coming down the mountain Jesus instructed them don't tell anyone what you have seen until the son of man has been raised from the dead the disciples asked him, why, do, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? See, they thought Jesus was only coming once. Well, why do they say Elijah has to come? You're here and Elijah hasn't come yet. You know, I mean, it makes sense. Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And says then that the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. So people read that and they say, well, that, doesn't that mean that John then was Elijah? Je- you know, Jesus says, Elijah has come. But Jesus gives more clarity to that in, 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 uh, in actually before that in Matthew 11. Matthew 11, verses 7 through 14. As John's disciples were leaving, remember there was a time John's disciples came to Jesus and asked him, are you truly the the Messiah? And as John's disciples are leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. He said, what did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind, somebody who was soft? If not, what did you go, to, go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I, I will send my messenger ahead of you who, who will prepare your way before you. So Jesus makes it clear. John was the one who was coming, according to Isaiah, to prepare the path for the Lord. Look at what he goes on to say. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, uh, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet whoever is least of the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. 
For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if, you are will, if, and if you are willing to accept it, in other words, if they are willing to accept the Messiah, he says, he is Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Then he goes on to talk about that generation. What can I compare this generation? In other words, if they would have been willing to accept their Messiah, that would have been Elijah. But since they were not, it was the one who was preparing the way for the Messiah. Remember when John was born with a prophecy to Zechariah about the coming of John? What does it say? He was told that he will prepare the way prepare the hearts of many, and he will come in the power and the spirit of Elijah. So John essentially was one coming to prepare the way for the Christ, for the Messiah. And in, in the end times, Elijah is coming back someday to prepare the hearts of the Jewish people for the coming of their Messiah again, but this time as conqueror, to prepare them leading into that great terrible day of Jehovah, he is coming again someday. All right, we're out of time. Let's, let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this day. Lord, we just ask your blessing upon it. We ask your blessing upon your word, Father. We, just, uh, we pray that we would just put our faith and trust in you as we go about this life and we see so many things that, that are difficult for us, that the world does not see the way we do we, we the world does not think the way we do and this so often bothers us and we get caught up uh, and, and afraid in what we see in the world but father we shouldn't you make it very clear that you are in control of all these things that that they will happen just as you have set them forth and so father help us just to put our trust in you on a daily basis uh, and to grow closer and closer to you and we just ask this in jesus precious name amen thank you everybody Next week.